0: And oh, he was so fine And I said to myself, self, I'm gonna make him mine He owned a lot of old wealth And his bankroll sure was healthy I knew that if I married him, I'd suddenly be wealthy Oh, I'll always love you Man.
1: Everybody, my name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And today, we have got a good episode for you. We are going to be talking about the theory of peak oil, and we're also going to be talking about the fossil fuel theory of oil. And we're also going to be bringing these ideas into question, and then we're going to cover what everybody knows and loves, or I hope you know and love it, which is the abiotic theory of oil and if you don't know about it well you'll get to learn a little bit about it today and it's certainly very interesting and along the way we're also going to be touching on some of the big players some of the oligarchs, if you will so without further ado let's just go ahead and jump into the show because we have a lot of ground to cover and we are going to start with the conclusion of world war ii so the united states will learn after world war ii the importance of oil not only in mobilizing troops whether that be by land or by air or by sea but they would also learn the value of being able to deny access to oil to their opponents and they would realize this because part of what secured the failure of nazi germany was the strategic bombing of the country's synthetic oil industry so while the soviets were certainly instrumental in the defeat of germany it can't be overlooked the effect that the german lack of oil had on their war effort and the soviets would no doubt be helped by germany's oil problems and in february and march of 1945 the germans would bring 1200 tanks to the Baranov bridgehead and would end up being immobilized due to this lack of oil and they would be defeated by the red army there So Germany had greatly underestimated the importance of oil and war. And both the Allies and the Russians, really everybody in the geopolitical sphere, would learn from Germany's mistakes. And so that is what the globe would learn after World War II. And it was clear in the aftermath of World War II that oil was kings. And who are the kings of oils? you know them. you probably don't love them it's the rockefellers so prior to the conclusion of the second world war it had been the british oil companies so that would be you know your royal dutch shell your anglo-persian oil company or as we know them today british petroleum that dominated the oil market but in the wake of world war ii It would be the rockefellers who would come to dominate the oil industry and that would be through their various subsidiaries under the rockefeller standard oil trust so some of these subsidiaries are the standard oil company of new york which is today mobile um, the standard oil company of new jersey which is today exxon the standard oil company of indiana the standard oil company of california or chevron and all their other many many subsidiaries so the rockefellers controlled domestic oil production in america but they would also control saudi aramco and they would not limit this to how they would control oil but they would also use the political sphere and coups orchestrated by the cia to help consolidate their near total control of the world's oil production and it seemed as if there was no links that they would not go in order to accomplish this So the Rockefellers and the Detroit automobile industry would benefit greatly by the new American dream that arose in the 1950s of every family owning a car, if not two, because you know, you have to have something to put in your garage. And this increase in automobile ownership would create a new market for oil and petroleum. Railways were becoming for freight as Americans began moving into the suburbs, however, just to give an example of the type of dirty tricks that the Rockefellers would do in order to consolidate their power over the oil industry and just really America and the world as a whole. The thing that stood in their way was the electric trolley cars and the men at Standard Oil and GM as well as the tire company Firestone, they would work together to force trolley companies into bankruptcy. So GM under its president Alfred P. Sloan would buy the largest bus operating company in America and he would then move GM to Manhattan where he proceeded to buy railways in order to replace them with gasoline consuming buses. Of course when GM replaced electric transit with petroleum ran buses, this led to a great increase of traffic, and you know this was in the densely populated borough of Manhattan. And so you have all this increase in traffic, which in turn would lead to an increase in the purchase of automobiles. And so we are going to read a brief little quote from F. William Engdahl in his book, Myth Lies in Oil Wars, which is gonna be one of the primary sources for today's episode. So check it out if you have not read that book and you're interested in learning more about this subject and also just the history of people like the Rockefellers using oil to control global politics in general. But anyways, Ingdahl writes, During the Great Depression on the eve of the war, Sloan had quietly created the innocuous sounding National City Lines, a company that appeared to have no visible connection to General Motors. In reality, GM totally controlled it. The board of directors came from Greyhound, a bus company controlled by GM, which also put up the money to start the company. Partners with GM and National City Lines were Standard Oil of California, or Chevron, Phillips Petroleum. Mack Truck Company, and Firestone Tire. By the end of the 1940s, GM had bought and scrapped over 100 municipal electric transit systems in 45 cities and put gas-burning GM buses on the streets in their place. By 1955, almost 90% of the electric streetcar lines in the United States had been ripped out or otherwise eliminated. GM, Standard Oil, and their partners were indicted in 1949 on charges of conspiracy to gain control of public transportation systems and to destroy competition in oil, auto, and rubber products and conspiracy to monopolize the sale of those same products. Clear violations of American antitrust laws. In 1951, the United States Court of Appeals acquitted GM and its partners of the first conspiracy charge and convicted them on the second finding the company a laughable $5,000. So, you know, I'm sure that that $5,000 really showed them who's boss. But anyways, so this is just an example of some of the dirty tricks that the people like the Rockefellers and other oligarchs were playing on the public in order to consolidate their power so however the work of big oil companies you know wasn't done here there was still the problem of those railways which were carrying passengers and freight which should have been transported by what other than gas guzzling vehicles so this would also mean the creation of the national grid of highways so when world war ii came to a close the railways were struggling due to government subsidies for airports and highways that the railroads weren't fortunate enough to receive as well as a 15% wartime excise tax on tickets meant to discourage travel, that, and this would also mean higher fares for people. So this meant that it was time for the big oil companies to strike, and so in the years following, more Americans were continuing to move to the suburbs and purchase cars, which meant that the you know the time to strike was now so in 1956 general motors and standard oil lobbied Eisenhower for the National Interstate and Defense Highway Act of 1956 which is the largest public infrastructure program in history and 90% of the cost would be taken up by the federal government so businesses were beginning to use the interstates as opposed to the railways and Rockefellers and General Motors was raking in the money hand over fist, but you know, this still was not enough, because it's never enough. And this revolution in transportation meant big profits for the oral oil barons. But they now needed to figure out how they were going to retain control over this new world that they had helped to usher in. So there we can get just a little bit of an idea of the dirty tricks that these oil barons were playing. So let's for just a brief little bit dive into the story of the Rockefellers, because we're going to be talking a lot about the Rockefellers today. So let's just start from the beginning, and that is with a guy named Bill Livingston, or Dr. Bill Livingston, who was a self-proclaimed cancer specialist who was not a specialist at all. And he was not even named Bill Livingston. Livingston was just a name that he had given himself after raping a woman in 1849 and having to ditch town, and Livingston would sell a tonic that he made, which consisted of laxative and petroleum, and he would travel from town to town, conning the local residents at each stop. He would leave his first wife and their six children before making his way to Canada, and then he would enter into a second bigamous marriage without having divorced the first time around. And at the time of his second marriage, he would also father another couple of children by yet a third woman. And Livingston would say of his parenting techniques, I cheat my boys every chance I get. I want to make them sharp. So who is Bill Livingston? Why am I talking about this snake oil salesman? Well, the man nicknamed Devil Bill by some of those who knew him, was actually William Avery Rockefeller, the father of John D. Rockefeller, who would be the man to create Standard Oil and begin a family dynasty that would not only come to dominate the world oil markets, but would go on to be one of the wealthiest families in all of history with some of the most power and sway of any of the wealthy families in all of history. So, very important characters, whether we're talking about not just oil, but we're talking about geopolitics or just anything. You know, He would be the one to pioneer philanthropy as a source of wealth creation and PR, do all kinds of interesting things. So in 1857, this guy named Edwin Drake, who worked at the Pennsylvania Rock Company, he would set out to collect oil. After the company had discovered that they could take the naturally occurring Seneca oil in the area and distill it into kerosene for lamps. And yes, I'm going to tie this back into the Rockefellers. And so while trying to find a way to secure enough oil to make distillation for the company profitable. And after drilling nearly 70 feet, Drake and his crew would finally strike oil just when they were about to have to pack up their bags and quit. And Drake would prove that drilling for oil was indeed profitable, and the first oil boom would begin to transform Pennsylvania, and that is when John D. Rockefeller planned to capitalize on this new oil boom, with a $1,000 loan from, you know, Devil Bill himself. And so Rockefeller would go into business with a couple men whom he would soon buy out, and after a series of mergers and partnerships would form the Standard Oil Company, and Rockefeller would go on to compete with the Rothschilds and the Dutch royal family and all the other people who were in competition with him at the time on the global oil stage. But when the invention of the light bulb came about, it seemed as if the future of oil may not be safe. That is, until the German engineer Carl Benz patented the two-stroke internal combustion engine and in 1888 the Benz motor wagon would become the first automobile available commercially and luckily for the oil monopolist it ran on gas so they were no longer just happening to rely on the sell of kerosene for lamps in order for petroleum drilling to be profitable Now, we have the two-stroke internal combustion engine and the Benz motor wagon. So, that's not to say that there were no other alternatives, though. Actually, electric vehicles date back to the 1830s, and the first electric car came into being in 1884, (laughs) you know, so there was other alternatives that, you know, could have existed, but, you know... Obviously, oil ended up winning out. 28% of automobiles were actually electric at the onset of the 20th century, but with the discovery of more oil, electric cars became more expensive, and so oil would win out in the battle between electric and oil vehicles. And this is just you know the beginning of the rockefeller you know oil monopoly story Uh, muckruckers would muckrakers would eventually begin to show the world who the rockefellers truly were lawsuits and investigations would follow in 1911 the supreme court would actually declare standard oil corporation a monopoly and would tell them that they needed to be dissolved however Rockefeller would realize that he had no need to fear because the individual Standard Oil companies actually ended up becoming worth more in total than Standard Oil as just one corporation. And the Rockefellers would continue to play all kinds of dirty tricks. John D. Rockefeller was the king of dirty tricks. He would get into philanthropy as a form of PR. He would fund the temperance movement when people were beginning to think that, you know, maybe we should ban alcohol. And he, not because he really cared about the morality of people or anything like that, he wasn't a drinker himself, but John D. Rockefeller saw as an opportunity to fund the temperance movement because it would actually end up leading to regulations that would be hard on the ethanol industry. And there was all kinds of cars that could be ran on. Ethanol, in fact, like the Ford cars, the, uh, oh, what's it called? The first Ford automobile was created to run either on oil or ethanol, but by funding the temperance movement, it would lead to regulations that would be difficult on the ethanol industry. And so Rockefeller was always working behind the scenes in order to ensure the primacy of oil when it came to what cars were going to run on and we could go really deep into all the different hijinks that rockefeller did back then but let's jump forward a little bit in the family dynasty and now we are back at the end of world war ii when the rockefeller family would control the shares of standard oil of california so chevron standard oil of new jersey and standard oil of new york which would later be mobile which you know dominated the industry at the time and at this point in the rockefeller dynasty there was the youngest david who worked in the banking industry at chase national bank there was nelson who served as an advisor to fdr on policy in latin america before transitioning into an eisenhower republican And then he became the Special Assistant to the President of Psychological Warfare and would help dictate Cold War operations. Then there was John D. III, who had an interest in what some would call population control. I think a better label would be eugenics. He was also the head of the Rockefeller Foundation and would play a large role in post-war Japan. And then there was lawrence who founded eastern airlines mcdonald aircraft co and the intel corporation through his venture capital group so this is where the rockefeller family dynasty is when the end of world war ii is you know came about and they would also wield their influence not only through their companies or with Nelson you know through being an advisor to the president or whatever but they would also wield influence through groups like the Council on Foreign Relations which is one of the most influential think tanks in history they also had some curious connections such as connections to the Dulles brothers for instance because John Foster Dulles was, for a time, a partner of the Wall Street legal firm Sullivan & Cromwell, which represented Standard Oil and was also a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. And John Foster Dulles, you know, he was the Secretary of State. His brother, Alan Dulles, was the director of the CIA, probably had a role in JFK getting killed. They were really good at coups in all kinds of foreign countries. Uh, bringing the Nazis over for you know American purposes and putting them in positions of power in Europe and stuff like that after the world after the war so some not good guys to say the least and author F William Ingdahl described the brothers as building their careers within the Rockefeller Empire so needless to say the Rockefellers were well positioned to assert their dominance over the globe during the Cold War period and now we come to peak oil, which is one of the mechanisms that the Rockefellers would use to control the world and its oil supplies. And so let's get into it. So While Washington was looking the other way, while the Rockefellers ignored price-fixing regulations and developed deeper ties to the national security state, a Russian-born scientist named Wassily Leontiev would receive a hundred thousand dollar grant from the Rockefeller Foundation in 1948. And with this money, he would create a valuable tool. Tool. <laughs> so that kind of funny. He would create a valuable tool that the Rockefellers would end up applying to oil. And they would turn this into a mechanism of social control. So F. William Engdahl writes. Leon an economist who had left the Soviet Union during his university studies and immigrated to the United States, set up the Harvard Economic Research Project just after the war. His aim was to develop an accurate, dynamic economic model based on his development of industry-by-industry input and output data. Leontis' project, part of which became the Harvard Business School's agribusiness model under Professors Ray Goldberg and John H. Davis, was generously financed with Rockefeller money throughout the 1950s. Later, the Ford Foundation, whose work was closely tied to the U.S. foreign policy agenda and often to that of the CIA during the 1950s, joined with Rockefeller to co finance Leontis' ambitious project. It was the first application of modern digital IBM computers to study complex economic variables. The result of the work done by Leontief's group at Harvard was an extraordinary gift to the powers that be within the establishment—a precise tool that, for the first time, could determine when the economy threatened the establishment's interest by growing in ways not beneficial to those interests. Leontief's work provided the Rockefeller circles with tools of social engineering unprecedented in scope. So, Ingdahl describes in Myth Lies in Oil Wars, how entire populations would be manipulated into becoming drones of the power elite through these concepts, which developed out of something called operations research. So that's where Leon Tiff was drawing a lot of his ideas from. And operations research was a method of strategy that was created during the Second World War learn how to most effectively use limited resources against an enemy but the people at the rockefeller foundation realized that not only was this effective in figuring out how to use limited resources against the enemy but that you could figure out how to manage whole societies through operations research so Leontief would be approached by the foundation at harvard and he would set about modeling large sectors of the american economy until eventually he began mapping out the globe through this method and so this management of limited resources through operations research would lie at the heart of the new rockefeller strategy of global domination and through this technology they would map out the oil needs of the world into the foreseeable future But when the Rockefeller's Saudi Arabian-based company Aramco discovered in 1948 the largest oil field in history at Guhar, and this field at Guhar would produce 5 million barrels of oil a day, the U.S. would begin its trajectory to being dependent on imported oil. And so then in 1953, another massive oil field was discovered in Iraq and Rumalia, and so large oil deposits just started popping up all over the Middle East. And this was kind of getting in the way of their plans that they had created through all of this operations research. And so with oil becoming more abundant and the prospect of oil being struck by someone who is potentially not beholden to the Anglo-American oil oligarch establishment, a new strategy needed to be devised. And so once again, Ingdahl says, As a first step, the major American and British oil interests concluded that a plausible scientific argument was needed that would propagate the convenient-for-them myth that the world's petroleum resources were finite and depleting rapidly. For this job, they chose an eccentric petroleum geophysicist from the University of Chicago who was working for Shell Oil in Texas, a man named Marion King Hubbard, or King as he preferred to be known. Hubbard was asked to deliver a paper to the annual meeting of the American Petroleum Institute in 1956, an event that would become one of the most fateful examples of scientific fabrication in the modern era. Hubbard posited all of his 1956 conclusions on the unproven assumption that oil was a fossil fuel, a biological compound produced from dead dinosaur detritus, algae, or other life forms originating some 500 million years back. Hubbard accepted the fossil theory without question and made no evidence attempts to scientifically validate such an essential and fundamental part of his argument. He merely asserted fossil origins of oil as gospel truth and began to build a new ideology around it, a Neo-Malthusian ideology of austerity in the face of looming oil scarcity. And so one can easily see how this idea of oil scarcity would benefit the budgets of the standard oils and BPs of the world. However, one can easily wonder, how is it that Hubbard came to his scientific conclusions? When looking at his methodology, it can be easy to wonder how exactly it is that he arrived at his theory of peak oil. And so Hubbard would actually tell one interviewer about his methodology in 1989 and just before I read this quote when he's talking about the curve he is talking about the Hubbard curve which is a method for predicting the likely production rate of a finite resource over a period of time in this case obviously we're talking about oil or fossil fuels if in Hubbard's belief so this is the curve that he is mentioning and it is like a bell curve and you know eventually you hit the other side of the bell curve and things begin to rapidly decline and so when we're talking about peak oil we're talking about hitting the peak of that curve so anyways just wanted to give that little bit of background information. So when I read this quote, we know what he's talking about when he's talking about the curve. But anyways, let's read this quote from 1989 to see what exactly it is that consisted of his methodology. So Hubbard said, what was required there was that I need to know or have an estimate of the ultimate amount that could be produced. I know the ultimate and I know I can only tailor that curve within a very narrow range of uncertainty. So that's what was done. Those curves were drawn, I simply, by cut and dry, I mean you drew the curve, calculated the spheres, and if it was a little too much, you trimmed it down, or too little, you upped it a little. But there was no mathematics involved, other than that integral area under the curve, for accumulated production up to a given time. So with the best estimates I could get on the ultimate amount of oil in the United States, my own figure at the time, was about 150 billion barrels. And... Obviously, his estimate ended up being wrong, but that gives you also a little bit of an idea of the methodology that he was using. I mean, it's just pretty crazy. And so Hubbard would say of his theory, This knowledge provides us with a powerful geological basis against unbridled speculations as to the occurrence of oil and gas. The initial supply is finite. The rate of renewal is negligible, and the occurrences is limited to those areas of the earth where the basement rocks are covered by thick sedimentary deposits. But here's the thing it's by no means clear that even if oils are, you know, dinosaur des- detritus after millions and millions of years, that can only be found where basement rocks are covered by thick sedimentary deposits that these kinds of areas had already been explored in their totality when Hubbard would make his claims in 1956. And so Hubbard would say that U.S. oil production would begin to decline in the 70s, which would be the beginning of an accelerating bell curve decline. But hubbard's bell curve was not backed by empirical data from oil fields but was rather based on the assumption of what Hubbard claimed was true of all oil fields that being that oil was a fossil fuel so hubbard would estimate the amount of fossils beneath sedimentary zones in the u.s and it was from this that he would deduce his theory of peak oil and a co-worker of hubbard's at shell oil would say about his peak oil methodology the numerical methods that hubbard used to make his predictions are not crystal clear today 44 years later my guess is that hubbard like everybody else reached his conclusion first then searched for raw data and methods to support his conclusion Despite sharing roughly a hundred lunches and several long discussions with Hubbard, I never had the guts to cross-examine him about the earliest roots of his prediction. So, just another thing before we leave the subject of Hubbard and peak oil and we begin to explore an alternative, one that isn't backed by people like the Rockefellers or Shell Oil, but which comes from Russia during the period of the Soviet Union, let's just touch real briefly on Hubbard's eccentric belief in a monetary system that Engdahl describes as Malthusian. So Hubbard believed that oil is a finite resource, which, you know, we already covered that, and that the money system and interest grow exponentially. So he proposed a system where energy availability would be used as the basis for the standard of living. So, given his prediction that oil was going to peak in the future, this would mean that people across the world would be subjected to austerity and a decrease in their standard of living. And this theory would be articulated in an article in 1938 while he was a member of a group called Technocracy, Inc., And, you know, you guys probably know technocracy is the ideology where politicians and businessmen are replaced as the elite of society by scientists and engineers, and that these are the people who manage the economy and society as opposed to, you know, politicians or what have you. And so the founder of this group... Hubbard was a part of was named howard scott and he would be saluted by members who wore their funny gray suits and they had monad pins and a lot of people at the time after world war ii would accuse them of being fascist or sympathetic to fascism and were people were put off by how they conducted themselves and the suits and the salutes to their leader and so Ingdahl states that technocracy inc was actually modeled after mussolini's fascist futurists and it isn't difficult really to see the overlap between these two camps of thought so we have hubbard who works at shell he works for the oil industry he comes up with this theory that is real quickly taken to by the elites of society it's real quickly taken up by the mainstream media he's you know the new poster boy for peak oil and he is also a believer in technocracy and wants to force austerity on people and so now we get a little bit of a look of you know how we have the Rockefellers who are funding this operations research we have people like Shell and the Rockefellers who get interested in all of this peak oil stuff and it makes sense that it would create an ability for them to sell to the public the idea that oil is this super finite resource that we're running out of it and you might have to pay more at the pump we have to go into all these foreign countries in order to secure oil because you know we're reliant on this oil that we're importing into our country and you you guys can kinda see where all of this is going so now Let's touch on a completely different theory of oil, one that does not subscribe to the fossil fuel theory of oil, one that does not subscribe to the idea that we are gonna peak uh, at oil production anytime soon. Let's go in to the real focus of today's episode, and that is the abiotic theory of oil. So the theory of abiotic oil. Now, we real tangentially covered the topic of peak oil. I would love to have gone deeper into it, but that would have made this much more than one episode, and I kind of wanted to tackle all of this in one foul swoop. But we covered operations research and how the Rockefellers were kind of trying to map out how it is that they were going to continue to dominate the global oil markets. And we have all these big oil reserves that are popping up that are driving the price of oil down and they were kind of scrambling to come up with some sort of method to keep control on things and then we have this guy from Shell Hubbard who comes up with this not well supported theory of peak oil and it creates an explanation as to oil is scarce it's running out and that this would be something that would be able to drive the prices up if you can get the public to believe that oil is more scarce than it is and while there is so much more that could be said about peak oil or operations research or any one of the things that we kind of just real briefly covered so far everything in this episode has kind of just been setting us up to where we can get to this portion And here's the thing as much time as we could have spent, you know, debunking the idea of peak oil and throwing criticisms at it, that's not really necessary if we end up believing that the theory of abiotic oil is true. Because then that in and of itself would refute the idea of peak oil, even the idea of oil as a fossil fuel. So I just thought that it would be. A better use of our time to just delve deep into abiotic oil and I will leave some sources to where everybody can look deeper into all these different subjects themselves and there's all kinds of subjects whether it be on you know peak oil or abiotic theory of oil or whatever so you guys can do more digging for yourselves But I thought that it would be best if we spent the majority of our time covering the abiotic theory of oil.
2: Born to be a roughneck I'll never amount to nothing Pulling keys and laying pipes Hard labor Well, I was born in a boomer shack About a half a mile from town Papa was a driller on a wildcat crew and my mama never was around. I learned to cuss when I was two and fight when I was three. And by the time I was five, there was no kid alive could ever get the best of me. Born to be a roughneck, I'll never amount to nothing. Pulling case and laying pipe. Man, when I was just about knee high, skinning the knuckles on my two bare hands, but they never heard me cry. I remember walking down the road and hearing somebody say, He was born to live a roughneck's life and he's never gonna change his way. Born to be a roughneck, I'll never amount to nothing. Pulling case and laying pipes of labor. Born to be a rough neck, I'll never mount to nothing. Pullin' case and laying
1: pipes of labor. Now let's remove ourselves out of the Rockefeller capitalist controlled West. And let's go into Soviet Russian thought when it comes to oil. So shortly after the fall of the USSR, a conference would be brought together in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and there would be some Russian and Ukrainian geophysicist and geochemist that would give a presentation in 1994 that would challenge all the conventions of Western Geology. They would share with the American scientists at this conference their discovery of hydrocarbons, so gas and oil, in the Donitz Basin. And this is a location that, according to all the established conventions in the West, shouldn't have had any oil. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this. So this conference that had been organized was organized by the drilling and observation of sampling of the Earth's continental crust. What a mouthful. So DOSEC is the acronym. So this group contained 57 American research organizations and some of the geologists and geophysicists in the United States. And it, there were some big boys in this conference. There was a lot of leaders in, you know, petroleum thought, if you will. So the head of the Department of Petroleum Exploration and the Institute of Geological Sciences of the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences, a professor by the name of V.A. Kryushkin, would give a presentation before um, all of these American scientists. And so Kryushkin had also led the exploration of the previously mentioned Dnieper Donets Basin in the Ukraine. And so now he would report the findings of these Russian and Ukrainian scientists to the conference. So given the fact that the Dnieper Donets Basin had no source rock, which are the geological formations, which according to Western orthodoxy are the unique formations from which hydrocar- hydrocarbons were capable of being generated, you know, there, there shouldn't have been been any hydrocarbons there but the oil and gas discovered by the russians was from what are known as the crystalline basement so deep rocks which had been believed to be incapable of holding this oil and gas and not only had they found oil but they had discovered a lot of it and kriushkin would go on to say that the oil and gas that they had found was not the result of dead dinosaur detritus algae or other life forms originating some 500 million bat years back or something like that so kryushkin would claim that this oil had you know not came from fossil fuels but that it had a non-biological origin that this oil was abiotic or abiogenic So the team had performed tests on the oil in order to demonstrate that the oil did not originate near the surface as would be expected according to the conventions of the time, but that it came from 200 kilometers deep. And the test they did to determine the origin of the oil had concluded through an analysis of trace elements that, Quote, the oil at all levels shared a common deep source, characterized by diffuse separation, regardless of the age, type, or circumstances of the particular reservoir rocks. So, Kryushkin would also describe to the scientists gathered in Santa Fe the bacteriological analysis of the oil, where they searched for evidence for biological markers to disprove their theory. And here's what he would say. The oil produced from the reservoirs in the crystalline basement rock of the Dnieper Donets Basin has been examined particularly closely for the presence of either porphyrin molecules or biological marker molecules, the presence of which would use to be misconstrued as evidence of a supposed biological origin for petroleum. None of the oil contains any such molecules, not even at the parts per million level. So, the oil discovered by the Russian scientists was at a depth much deeper than one would expect to find dinosaur fossils such as the oil that the Russian scientist professor Vladimir Kucherov would explain the team had discovered in the Rameshkino, uh fields outside of West Siberia so the reservoirs discovered there existed at a depth of up to 49,000 feet which comes you know out to almost five miles so F. William Engdahl writes in, Myth Lies in Oil Wars, Um, kind of a summary of the conclusions of these Russian scientists. And so he would say, what the Russian and Ukrainian scientists had determined was that hydrocarbons, various molecules of hydrogen and carbon that form the basis of oil, gas, and coal, and even diamonds, have their genesis some 200 kilometers below the surface of the Earth, where methane, or a mixture of methane, is generated. That mixture at high pressure and temperature is then forced upwards vertically towards the surface in what they call migration channels. These migration channels are described as deep faults located 70 to 100 kilometers down. They tend to be vertical and seek the shortest route towards the surface. During the migration towards the surface, the hydrocarbons can pass through what are called catalytic zones, where under the influence of nickel or ferum, at a depth of around 10 to 15 kilometers, they are catalytically transformed. A form of spontaneous generation of oil or gas thus takes place in the upper mantle of the earth, approximately 200 kilometers from the surface. The oil or gas is then forced towards the surface until it is trapped or accumulates in porous or what conventional geologists call sedimentary rock with cap rocks which block its further upwards flow. This is where oil and gas deposits form. And so while Western scientists argue that if you have the accumulation of some biological material like plankton or dinosaur that over the course of hundreds of millions of years forces its way down, the Russian scientists were arguing basically the inverse of that, that instead of oil coming you know, down, that you have oil constantly being formed incredibly deep down and being pushed upwards through these migration channels you know, until the sedimentary basin fills. And so obviously, if this is true, the implications are massive. So if oil is being created in the Earth's mantle, which exists at depths that no biological remains could have ever existed, then that would mean that oil would exist in locations that had never been expected. And this would also mean that there is more than enough oil across the globe And that the prices of oil would drop massively, given the fact that if it is not nearly as scarce as once thought, it's got to be cheaper. And so it goes without saying that this isn't what the oligarchs want to hear. And so the Ukraine state would give the Ukrainian team the state prize for science and technology for their discoveries, but the team would, to say the least, not receive the same reception in the West. However, this discovery didn't simply begin with this group who presented at Santa Fe. The Soviets had been doing geological science of their own, and due to the Cold War, it never made its way out of the East to the West. And it was only with the end of the USSR that any of this made it into the Western academic spheres to begin with. So the story of the abiotic theory of oil. Um, that states, you know, that oil is created in the mantle and not by biological remains and source rock and sedimentary basins, actually stretches back to a man named Joseph Stalin. And Stalin had seen the role that oil had played in the defeat of Germany, as we mentioned at the top of the episode. And so, you know, after World War II, he was beginning to see the possibility of increased tensions with the West on the horizon churchill had given his famous iron curtain speech truman had helped create nato american military escalation was underway in korea the list goes on and on and you know and like with the military escalation in korea you know american elites were telling the public that it was the soviet union was to blame and you know stalin was not a stupid guy at all and so he kind of saw the writing on the wall and he realized that Russia was going to need to be oil independent and that they cannot rely on the West for imports lest they suffer a defeat due to lack of oil and some sort of potential skirmish. So this he realized that if he was dependent on oil that this could put his country in a potentially lethal position and so he would set into motion a scientific undertaking that i've seen some people compare in scope to the manhattan project and this scientific undertaking would have as its objective discovering how is oil created um how are reserves generated and what's the best way to drill for the black gold basically just to figure out everything they could about oil and so by the early 50s, a team of Soviet scientists were working to figure out how to make the USSR self-sufficient when it came to oil. And many of these scientists were respected geologists and geophysicists and physicists. Like, and I'm probably not going to do some of these names ju- justice, but there was N.A. um, there was uh, P.N. Kropotkin, and V.B. P- Porfiryev, you know and a host of other scientists but anyhow in 1951 a paper was published in the soviet journal petroleum economy by a man by the name of nikolai kurodyostev and it had the self-explanatory title of against the organic hypothesis of petroleum origins and this paper gave birth to the modern russian ukrainian theory of deep abiotic petroleum origins However, it should be stated that this theory dates back centuries um, and includes, as some of its big proponents, Dmitry Mendeleev, Mendeleev, um, who was the inventor of the periodic table of elements. And so we see that this theory has a history that goes back hundreds of years from now. But it was truly with, you know, these Russians and Ukrainians in the Soviet Union that we began to really see this theory fleshed out and real evidence accumulated for it and uh, how exactly the mechanics of how all of this works truly laid, laid out. And so, in 1951, a conference would also be held in the USSR, the All-Union Conference in Petroleum and Petroleum Geology, and it would continually be, it would continue to annually deal with this thesis up until the year 1965, and it would also deal with the lack of evidence for the theory of oil coming from biological detritus over the course. Of hundreds of millions of years so you know we can already see here that the West and the East have greatly departed in their theories of the the origins of petroleum and so over the next 20 years validation would come in the form of physical data by chemist physicist thermodynamicist and according to author F. William Engdahl, over a thousand publications from Russian and Ukrainian scientists would be published in journals and books that would further validate this hypothesis. And so these Russian and Ukrainian scientists would also work to question the fundamental orthodoxy of petroleum geology at the time by asking very simple questions like, how is oil created? And in a twist of irony, uh the fossil fuel theory of oil actually originates in Russia in seventeen fifty seven. And so we can see that both the abiotic theory and the fossil fuel theory have a long history and um the theory that origin the fossil fuel theory originated in seventeen fifty seven with a scientist by the name of Mikhail Lomonosov, who had told the St. Petersburg Academy of Scientists rock oil originates as tiny bodies of animals buried in the sediments which under the influence of increased temperature and pressure acting during an unimaginably unimaginably excuse me long period of time transform into rock oil so that would be you know petroleum recruit oil um, but could realized that Lomonosov's theory had it really ever been subjected to rigorous testing, and so the Russian scientists would essentially rework petroleum geology from the bottom up. And according to Ingdahl, Lomonosov is he's somewhat famous for not rigorously testing many of his suggestions. But anyways... Let's get into, you know, some more of the evidence for abiotic oil. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read once again from Engdahl. Um By the 1960s, Soviet researchers had established that the creation of reduced hydrocarbon molecules requires pressures of magnitudes encountered only at depths found in the mantle of the earth, which begins at approximately 22 miles or 35 kilometers from the surface. In 1967, Soviet scientist EB Chukaluk published a major contribution to confirming their theory that oil was actually being continually created deep in the earth's mantle and forced upward through faults or migration channels, as they named them. Chukaluk wrote In a process of the deep-seated synthesis of oil from methane, the volume of mantle material decreases, and this transformation generates the favorable conditions for the sinking of the crust of the earth and the formation of deep basins, the sizes of which correspond to the scale and size of zones of petroleum reservoir formation. The accumulation and filling of such basins with water and later with sediments increases the geostatic loading in the zones of synthesis, stimulating the condensation of oil and the enlargement of molecules and thereby additional sinking of those areas of the Earth's crust. And that can be a little bit much to follow. So let's look at a Ukrainian scientific researcher named VI Sozansky who summarized it. Hydrocarbon compounds of natural petroleum are generated spontaneously, only at the very high pressures found in the deep crust or upper mantle of the earth. Natural petroleum is a primordial abiotic fluid which has penetrated the upper parts of the crust from great depth, usually along deep faults. So, another interesting phenomenon that lends credence to the abiotic theory of petroleum origins are stories of oil fields refilling. So, now that we have kind of got a baseline for what the abiotic oil theory is saying, and we've heard a little bit about the evidence of, you know, these people out in West Siberia drilling down deeper and getting oil from, you know, rocks that we wouldn't expect for them to get oil from... Let's look into another thing to support this theory, and that would be oil fields that just mysteriously refill themselves. So this is another thing that the Russian researchers mentioned in their many journal publications and books. Uh, Vladimir Kucherov, who was a professor of geochemistry at the Russian State University of Oil and Gas at the Swedish Institute of Royal Technology, another mouthful, um, would discuss with Ingdahl the Romashkino field in Russia as one example of this phenomenon. And the field had been shut down not long after the collapse of the USSR, after it had began to yield 99% water. But Kucherov would say, In 2007, we went and reopened some of the closed wells. There, we had oil. In terms of viscosity and density, the oil was lighter than had previously been there. The test showed that the fresh oil could only have come from depths of several kilometers or more, and not from sedimentary rocks. It has come from fundament, from basement rock, which meant a reservoir at a depth of some 10 to 15 kilometers. And he would go on to say, All the world's giant oil fields are in deep fault zones without exception. If you were able to estimate the flow rate of refill from the migration channel into the filled reservoir, you could exploit the field at the right flow rate, virtually forever. That means another technology, another economics, another philosophy. So Kucherov would also postulate. This is just kind of an interesting aside before we go into some more evidence for the abiotic theory of oil. But he would also postulate that the 2010 BP oil spill could have been a result of the company drilling into a migration channel, and that you know the explosive force of the hydrocarbons, you know stuff that would include methane, for instance. Um, led to the accident, so that's certainly an interesting idea of uh, one of the possible reasons for the, you know, Deepwater Horizon incident, so very interesting stuff, but anyways, another example of this phenomenon of oil fields refilling themselves comes from It comes out of louisiana and i'm gonna go ahead and read an article from the wall street journal because you know if it's from the wall street journal you know that you can trust it so this article is entitled odd reservoir off louisiana prods oil experts to seek a deeper meaning by christopher cooper what a good pun to seek a deeper meaning gotta drill down to that deeper meaning but anyhow the article states Something mysterious is going on at Eugene Island 330. Production at the oil field deep in the Gulf of Mexico off the, coast of Le- off the coast of Louisiana was supposed to have declined years ago, and for a while it behaved like any normal field. Following its 1973 discovery, Eugene Island 330's output peaked at about 15,000 barrels a day. By 1989, production had slowed to about 4,000 barrels a day. Then suddenly... Some say, almost inexplicably, Eugene Island's fortunes reverse. The field, operated by Penn's Energy Co., is now producing 13,000 barrels a day, and probable reserves had rocketed to more than 400 million barrels from 60 million. Stranger still, scientists studying the field say the crude coming out of the pipe is of a geological age quite different from the oil that gushed 10 years ago all of which has led some scientists to a radical theory. Eugene Island is rapidly refilling itself, perhaps from some continuous source miles below the Earth's surface. That, they say, raises the tantalizing possibility that oil may not be the limited resource it is assumed to be. Gene Wellen A geochemist and senior researcher from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts says, I believe there is a huge system of oil just migrating deep underground, about 80 miles off the Louisiana coast. The underwater landscape surrounding Eugene Island is otherworldly, cut with deep fissures and faults that spontaneously belch gas and oil. So... This is not just, these aren't the only examples. Yet another example of finding oil where none would expect to find oil was in May 1987 when the Soviet Vietnamese joint venture Viet Sov Petro found oil from Granite Basement in Bac Ho, a region where Mobil had tried to strike oil prior to the fall of Saigon. But Viet Sov Petro team would drill 5,000 meters, which means nearly three miles down, and they found plenty of petroleum. Uh, The White Tiger oil field was the largest they discovered and was for a long time the largest commercial field in Vietnam. And why is this notable? Well, it's because according to Western Petroleum Orthodoxy, oil shouldn't have been found in the basement rock, a stratum where ancient plants and animals never populated. So, Western geologists wrote off discovery with a theory that ingdahl describes as curious, and I kind of find it a little bit curious too. And it's this idea that uh, oil had somehow leaked from nearby sedimentary basins down. Which I'm no expert. That doesn't make sense to me when you take into account the pressure and just anyhow. But these still aren't the only examples. The previously mentioned Kryushkin stated that there was the, quote, existence of 80 oil and gas fields which occur partly or completely in crystalline basement rock in the West Siberian basin. And he would also state that the production of this oil and gas occurs solely in this rock from the depth of 800 to 1500 meters below the roof of the crystalline basement. So, these discovery of depths of, you know, five or seven kilometers deep just creates so many questions for Western geologists that they really don't have any adequate answers for. But, the theory of abiotic oil does have a lot of explanatory power when we're talking about, you know, whether it be finding oil in places where we think that we shouldn't have found oil, or when these oil fields refill, or any of this you know from a western standpoint mysterious things that are happening so can we know that you know it's even possible for oil to be created in the environment that is described by proponents of the abiotic oil theory does the theory of fossil fuel origin adequately explain their theory of the creation of oil on a thermodynamics level well let's look at a study by jf Kinney and his team that would seek to tackle these exact questions and we're actually not going to look at the study so much as some articles discussing the study just because it'll be easier than you know uh diving deep into the study or looking into the abstract although hey check it out if you're interested it's interesting stuff but The article published that we're going to be talking about was published in Nature, and it's called Fossil Fuels Without the Fossils, Petroleum, Animal, Vegetable, or Mineral. And they deal with the findings of Kinney and Co. So let's see what Nature has to say about it. Petroleum, the archetypal fossil fuel, couldn't have formed from the remains of dead animals and plants, claim U.S. and Russian researchers. They argue that petroleum originated from minerals at extreme temperatures and pressures. Other geochemists say that the work resurrects a scientific debate that is almost a fossil itself, and criticize the team's conclusion. The team, led by J.F. Kinney of the Gas Resources Corporation in Houston, Texas, mimic conditions more than 100 kilometers below the Earth's surface by heating marble, iron oxide, and water to around 1,500 degrees Celsius and 50,000 times atmospheric pressure. They produced traces of methane, the main constituent of natural gas and octane, the hydrocarbon molecule that makes petrol. A mathematical model of the process suggests that apart from methane, none of the ingredients of petroleum could form at depths less than 100 kilometers. And then, you know, the article goes on to say that just because oil could theoretically form without biological origins, it doesn't prove or disprove anything. And then it says that no one in the industry takes this theory seriously which i mean i guess the league of russian geologists and chemists and geophysicists spanning over you know 50 years or 60 years of their research just entirely don't exist according to nature but the new scientists would also give some coverage to this study and give kind of the same unfair treatment that nature would but the economist of all places would give a more fair treatment In their article titled the argument needs oiling so let's take a look at what this article has to say millions of years ago tiny animals and plants died they settled at the bottom of the oceans over time they were crushed beneath layers of sediment that built up above them and eventually turned into rock the organic matter now trapped hundreds of meters below the surface started to change Under the action of gentle heat and pressure, and in the absence of air, the biological debris turned into oil and gas. Or so the story goes. In 1951, however, a group of Soviet scientists led by Nikolai Khodrojestev claimed that this theory of oil production was fiction. They suggested that hydrocarbons, the principal molecular constituents of oil, are generated deep within the earth from inorganic materials. Few people outside Russia listened, but one who did was J. F. Kinney, an American who today works for the Russian Academy of Sciences and is also chief executive of Gas Resources Corporation in Houston, Texas. He said, "As he says, it is nonsense to believe that oil derives from squashed fish and putrefied cabbages." This is a brave claim to make when the overwhelming majority of petroleum geologists subscribe to the biological theory of origin. But Dr. Kennedy has evident but Dr. Kinney has evidence to support this argument. I've always got Kennedy on the brain, folks. In this week's Proceedings of the Natural Academy of Sciences, he claims to establish that it is energetically impossible for alkanes, one of the main types of hydrocarbon molecules in crude oil, to evolve from biological precursors at the depths where reservoirs have typically been found and plundered. He has developed a mathematical model incorporating quantum mechanics, statistics, and thermodynamics which predicts the behavior of a hydrocarbon system. The complex mixture of straight change and branched alkane molecules found in crude oil could, according to his calculations, have come into existence only at extremely high temperatures and pressures, far higher than those found in the Earth's crust where the orthodox theory claims they are formed. To back up this idea, he has shown that a cocktail of alkanes, Methane, hexane, octane, and so on, similar to that in natural oil, is produced when a mixture of calcium carbonate, water, and iron oxide is heated to 1,500 degrees Celsius and crushed with the weight of 50,000 atmospheres. This experiment reproduces the conditions in the Earth's upper mantle 100 kilometers below the surface and so suggests that oil could be produced there from completely inorganic sources. So in 2002, when the formerly mentioned Kucherov superheated calcium carbonate water and iron in a pressure chamber, he would not only find some of the material um, convert to hydrocarbons, but of that material that did convert, 10% of it was heavier oil components. So that's something that I think is worth mentioning in conjunction with that article. But as we can see, these studies that are mentioned in these articles that we just read show that not only could the hydrocarbons and even some of the heavier oil components form in this kind of atmosphere but that on a thermodynamics level and stuff at least according to people like kenny that it makes more sense to subscribe to the abiotic theory of oil so another question that the fossil fuel theory brings to mind is how much biological detritus how many dead dinos would be needed to explain the amount of oil that is in existence and the amount of oil that's found at the largest oil fields such as the guajar oil field in saudi arabia which we have mentioned earlier and at a maximum it can pump up to 3.8 million barrels a day so um let's go to the man the myth the legend mr dave mcgowan who kind of puts it comically. So, you know, just more of me reading because before long this podcast is just going to turn into a damn audiobook. But anyhow, let me just read from Dave McGowan real quick. How could dinosaurs have possibly created the planet's vast oil fields? Did millions or even billions of them die at the very same time, at the very same place? Were there dinosaur Jonestowns on a grand scale occurring at locations all across the planet? And how did they all get buried so quickly because if they weren't buried right away wouldn't they have just decomposed and were being consumed by scavengers and how much oil can you really squeeze from a pile of parched dinosaur skeletons maybe there was some type of cataclysmic event that caused the sudden extinction of the dinosaurs and also buried them like the impact of an asteroid or a comet But even so, you wouldn't think that all the dinosaurs would have been huddled together waiting to become oil fields. And besides, scientists are now backing away from the mass extinction theory. The Wall Street Journal article previously cited noted that it would take a pretty big pile of dead dinosaurs to account for the estimated 660 billion barrels of oil in the Middle East. I don't know what the precise dinosaur carcass to barrel of oil conversion rate is, but it does seem like it would take a hell of a lot of dead dinosaurs. Even if we generously allow that a single dinosaur could yield 5 barrels of oil, an absurd notion, but let's play play along for now, more than 130 billion dead dinosaurs would have had to be simultaneously entombed in just one small region of the world. But were there really hundreds of billions of dinosaurs roaming the earth? If so, then wonders why there is all this talk now of overpopulation and scarce resources when we are all currently dealing with is a few billion humans populating the same earth. And why the Middle East? Was that region some kind of Mecca for dinosaurs? Was it the climate or the lack of water and vegetation that drew them there? Of course, the region could have been much different in prehistoric times. Maybe it was like the Great Valley in the Land Before Time movies. Or maybe the dinosaurs had to cross the Middle East to get to the Great Valley, but they never made it. Because they got bogged down in the desert and ultimately became, though I'm guessing here is through some alchemical process, cans of 10W40 motor oil. Another version of the fossil fuel story holds that microscopic animal carcasses and other biological matter gathered on the world's seafloors with that organic matter then being covered over with sediment over the course of millions of years. You would think, however, that any biological matter would decompose long before you covered it with sediment, but I guess not. And I guess there was no bottom feeders in those days to clear the ocean floor of organic debris. Fair enough, but I still don't understand how those massive piles of biological debris, some consisting of hundreds of billions of tons of matter, could have just suddenly appeared so that they could then sit undisturbed for millions of years as they were covered over with sediment. I can understand how biological detritus could accumulate over time, mixed in with the sediment, but that wouldn't really create the conditions for the generation of vast reservoirs of crude oil. So I guess I must be missing something here. So there was Dave McGowan rather comically and eloquently explaining <laughs> the predicament. But anyhow, while we're on the subject of Dave McGowan, I've got some more interesting stuff for all the McGowan heads out there. And I know that there's quite a few who listen to this show. I think the majority of people who listen to this show are McGowan heads. And this is a beef that would take place between Dave McGowan and former LAPD narcotics detective and the staunch peak oil advocate Michael Rupert, which rest in peace to both those guys. But one of the people who would convince Rupert of peak oil was a guy by the name of Matt Simmons, who was an investment baker from Houston. He was also a friend of none other than Dick Cheney, and he would actually be one of the members of Cheney's Energy Task Force. And the Energy Task Force was the first act of President Bush and it would be entitled the national energy policy development group and so cheney would consult with executives of leading oil companies like bp chevron ExxonMobil, list goes on while working with the task force and he would also ask in something that's interesting and maybe you know kind of plays a role when you start thinking about the invasion of iraq and afghanistan um, he would ask for precise maps of Iraqi oil fields, and he would discuss energy security. And I think that you guys can probably see how energy security kind of serves as a euphemism for justifying military intervention, and then setting up oil fields and giving the contracts to Halliburton in the Middle East. You know, just business as usual. But. This Simmons had, in addition to being involved with the oil business, was a longtime member of what else besides the Council on Foreign Relations? And Simmons became probably the most prominent figure to feed the alternative media the idea of peak oil. And then you have Michael Rupert who was probably the most prominent guy in the alternative media who was constantly talking about peak oil and of upcoming oil scarcity. And Simmons would give an interview actually to Michael Rupert as well as others in the alternative media And he would write about what he would believe was the accuracy of the Club of Rome's depopulation documents um, The depopulation document uh, Limits to growth and all kinds of other stuff And so I guess you can start to see how McGowan was seeing this stuff going on as someone who was Deeply knowledgeable about abiotic oil theory I Um, He says in one of his articles, actually, that he was planning to write a book along with someone else. So I guess that's one of the many amazing things that we are missing out on because of his untimely demise. But anyhow, um, and so in relation to Simmons, so in 1973, the Saudis would actually pull off the state buyback of Aramco And then they would name it saudi aramco and would thereafter refuse to disclose the performance of the oil fields in their possession and this includes the previously mentioned guhar fields so simmons would claim that he had received more than 100 technical production reports and he would continue to sound the alarm of peak oil and more importantly to people in our circles he would sell the idea of peak oil to many in the alternative media especially the anti-war sphere Of the alternative media and the banker would not disclose how he came into possession of these reports whether he had I don't know taken the reports or if he had gotten access to these documents from the Saudis themselves and if the latter is the case why would the Saudis entrust him with these documents when they would not permit anyone else to see them And he would say that from reviewing these documents, and the number would start with 100 documents until it eventually grew to be 200 documents, uh, that he would come to the conclusion that the Saudis had already surpassed their peak in oil and that they were trying to cover it up. And he would write the book, which as much as I don't care for this guy, I do enjoy the, the name of his book. He named it well, Twilight in the Desert. And so, after the publication of the book, the mainstream media began to say that this is why oil prices had skyrocketed after the invasion of Iraq, and they neglected to mention that the U.S. had, in the words of Ingdahl, removed Iraqi oil from world markets by force. And so, regardless of the many other mitigating factors in the rise in the price of oil, the peak oil advocates, the peak nicks, um, Always, you know, say that this is a confirmation of their theory when oil prices rise. And so Simmons would also go on to be associated with the group Association for the Study of Peak Oil, which had Cheney's Halliburton as one of its backers, as well as the large company Schlumberger. And so another member of this group alongside Simmons was Colin Campbell, who, according to McGowan, I could not find this on the from the wilderness um, like archives or anything like this but according to McGowan uh, Colin Campbell was another source of Rupert's and one of these people who Rupert would refer to and so you know we have people who are getting backing from you know Halliburton who work inside the oil industry who are investment bankers who sit on the council of foreign relations and they are feeding Michael Rupert this information And so it's kind of interesting that a guy who was so skeptical of people uh, didn't seem to be too skeptical of who it was that he was getting this idea of peak oil from and their potential motivations in uh, proposing these ideas and feeding them to people like Michael Rupert. So unfortunately for the public, the only way that we would be able to verify Simmons' claims in his many interviews and in his book Twilight in the Desert Um, the only way to verify that this would be true is if the saudis oil reserves were you know this theory that the saudi oil reserves are depleting and that saudi officials are hiding this fact would be for saudi officials themselves to confirm or to deny this fact and then to supply the necessary evidence to confirm or supply this but i'm not going to hold my breath that we're ever going to see that so Rupert would actually challenge McGowan to a public debate on the topic. And McGowan would accept. He said, how did high noon sound? And I don't believe any debate ever took place. But I wish that it had. If any of you guys know about the existence of it, let me know. DMs are always open at thingobserver on Twitter. All one word. Nothing funny. All lowercase. But I think McGowan makes an interesting point. When it comes to how this theory of peak oil could be used as a justification for war. And he would note in his writings how these ideas were specifically being seeded amongst those in the anti-war crowd. So I'll once again read from McGowan. Several readers have written to me incidentally with a variation of the following question. How can you say that peak oil is being promoted to sell war when all the websites promoting the notion of peak oil are stridently anti-war? But of course they are. That, you see, is precisely the point. What I was trying to say is that the notion of peak oil is being specifically marketed to the anti-war crowd because, as we all know, the pro-war crowd doesn't need to be fed any additional justifications for going to war. Any of the old lies will do just fine. And I never said that the necessity of war was being overtly sold. What I said, if I remember correctly, is that it is being sold with a wink and a nudge. The point that I was trying to make is that it would be difficult to imagine a better way to implicitly sell the necessity of war, even while appearing to stake out a position against war, than through the promotion of the concept of peak oil. After September 11th, someone famously said that if Osama bin Laden didn't exist, the U.S. would have had to have invented him. And I think the same could be said for peak oil. So... Another point made by McGowan is that Rupert and others in the peak oil crowd offer nothing in the way of a solution to this predicament that will supposedly up in society and is going to completely alter life as we know it. And, you know, we're all going to be facing war and starvation and all the horrible things that are going to ensue in the result of peak oil. But yet they have no kind of solutions ideas of alternative energy that would function they basically say that we're completely dependent on oil we're going to run out of it and we're going to be doomed and so mcgowan quotes rupert in an article that i'll link below where rupert said different regions of the world peak in oil production at different times the opec nations of the middle east peak less within a few years they or whoever controls them will be in effective control of the world economy and in essence of human civilization as a whole and i think mcgowan rightfully points out that this seems like a better rallying cry than any other that he could think of for justifying the invasion and occupation of the middle east because hey isn't it better to you know invade and occupy the middle east than to have a global oil depletion that sends us into massive war and starvation and famine and what have you um so anyways there's a little bit about the mcgowan and rupert beef and it got pretty heated and you know mcgowan calling rupert a shell and you know rupert basically insinuating that mcgowan is an idiot for believing in abiotic oil and that no one seriously takes this idea Um, unknown serious takes this idea seriously excuse me but anyhow i thought that that was also something that is worth mentioning and it's interesting to see how certain ideas are seeded into the alternative media and how they could be used to get people on the wrong track And there's so much more that could be said about the subject of peak oil and its Malthusian implications and, you know, degrowth bullshit that's, you know, now being promoted by people like the World Economic Forum, and it's been being promoted by, you know, Rockefeller-funded stuff for ages, and, you know, we've got the formerly mentioned Club of Rome and their limits to growth. We could talk about Paul Ehrlich and a number of other interesting people. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We could talk about all the evidence against peak oil and how the predictions of peak oil keep being constantly revised and, you know, dates being set further back into the future as to when this country or that country is going to peak in oil. But I thought that it was more instructive to just focus on abiotic oil theory. And I did not even cover that in totality but you know we covered a little bit of a history of the rockefeller family we talked a little bit about the rockefellers you know subserve subverting the electric trolleys and you know all the funny business that they did to get the world dependent on oil we talked about how you know both the west and the east realized after the failure of nazi germany in world war ii the necessity of controlling the oil it's been uh it, it's been said i don't know if it's true or but that that henry kissinger said whoever controls the oil controls the world you know and so um you know people in both the west and the east kind of ran with that idea stalin had to figured out that he would have to be independent for his oil and that's what led to the abiotic oil we covered a lot of interesting stuff And there's so much more that could be said about each individual thing that we talked about, you know, from operations research to peak oil to abiotic oil theory. But I wanted to get all these ideas in one episode. So hopefully I covered everything well and hopefully it all made sense and that there was a logical progression from one topic to the next and that you guys learned a little bit of something because that's what I was trying to do. So let me know what you think of the show. If you did enjoy this episode, Please leave, you know, a review on whether it be Spotify or Apple podcast or wherever it is that you're listening. I always appreciate the reviews. And when you guys write a review, I get to see it, you know. So regardless of what you think, I'd be interested to hear from you guys. You can also always DM me at Twitter, on Twitter at thingobserver, all lowercase, one word thing observer so you can also get in contact with me there if you have anything that you want to share with me if you want to suggest ideas for shows in the future whatever it is i'm always happy to hear from you guys it's always interesting to get to chat with y'all and so anyways i hope you guys enjoyed this episode make sure to leave a review follow the podcast if you want to listen to more episodes we've got some interesting stuff coming down the pipe um so anyhow I love y'all. Take care. Talk to all of y'all soon.
3: Is it gold? Is it golden cobble? I've been there in a nest of snakes I've been there